You're listening to the Going Offsides podcast. Your home for lacrosse news, stories, and everything in between. So first of all, thank you for your time. I know you're in a, it's pretty busy for you right now. I mean, you don't usually play Sunday night games or Sunday evening games either. So uh, I'm sure it's been an interesting and wild week for you. Yeah, it's, uh, it's the new normal. Right. Right. So, uh, you know, we find out midweek that we can play Dartmouth. Um, you know, the week before that, we found out on Friday we were going to play Wesley and Sunday. And, uh, you know, we just, you know, usually sort of chalk up Monday through Wednesday for figuring out who the heck we're going to play. And then right. Thursday and Friday is when we prep for them. So, yeah, no, I know what you mean by that, because I went to practice today thinking that I was only going to have seven kids because half my team is in quarantine. And then the county released them all. And they, it was a mad dash to get to practice before before it started. So there you you know, go. rapid tested 15 minutes before practice and and boom, we're, we're back all of a sudden. So it, it's been a crazy year. So let's start with that. Um, what going into the season, what did you know? as far as from the, the school side of things, what was the plan for the NESCAC going into the fall? Well, we, we didn't really know that much about the spring mm-hmm. and what that was going to look like. Obviously nobody did. Um, you know, I think a big part of having activities in the fall was making sure that we were going to provide oversight for the student athletes. Um, you know, in the past they've sort of done captain's practices and, you know, they've done those a couple of times a week and there's been, you know, no coaches there, which has been great. And I hope we get back to that at some point. But I think with all of the different mandates and all of the different rules and regulations with the masking and the six feet and the small groups and the no intermixing, um, you know, it was pretty important to them to have some adult oversight there. So, you know, we had we had 23 practices as a team. Um, We were never, you know, full contact. We're full contact for two. Mm-hmm. Uh, of those 23 um so really had to keep six feet or you know incidental contact so it really just gave us a chance to you know develop small small group skills more than anything else and uh you know and then we kind of ended the semester and thought all right well we're gonna p- kind of have an idea at some point in january what that was going to look like and that continued to stretch um until march 9th is when we finally got word that we were going to be able to play. <laughs> okay. So uh, I can understand how difficult that would be. Normally you're halfway through season, March 9th. And I know you generally, and correct me if I'm wrong here, the NESCAC does start a little bit later than, than many conferences, but we do. We normally start on February 15th for practices. Right. So it wasn't as late as for everybody else or as delayed, but I'm sure you were still like kind of just kind of like how the Ivy League has been as well, just waiting and waiting. So what kind of did you do to kind of keep the mental edge sharp for your players and your team to know that there is very possibly a chance that we were going to be playing very soon? But knowing that for like five, six, seven straight weeks, how does that not get old? You know, what did you do to keep them sharp? Um, you know, we just listened to them. I think that was a big thing is, uh, you know, to say, Hey, what do you need? You know, uh, you know, because they came back on campus sort of mid January and they had to quarantine for two weeks and, uh, and then they couldn't use any of the facilities, uh, really until March 1st. So, you know, it was, you know, are we doing zoom meetings? Are we doing, 
you know, are we meeting outside in small groups? Am I going over to a house and, you know, standing at the sidewalk so I could see some of the guys for a couple right. minutes? Um, you know, but I think, I think it was, you know, a couple of Zoom meetings, but not too many. You know, I think moderation has really been the key for us in terms of those, in terms of those Zoom meetings. Um, you know, we did a couple of leadership meetings online, which are, which are good. Um, you know, but it was really sort of working with our strength and conditioning person to figure out, all right, when we can get back there on March 1st and they can start lifting, you know, what does that look like? Where do we want to be? All right. If, you know, the national championships Memorial Day weekend, you know, how do we sort of work backwards from there and make sure that we're still peaking in early May? Um, you know, so it was a lot of backwards planning and a lot of moderation and listening to the guys and you know, just saying, Hey, like, what do you, what do you guys need this week? Do you need meetings? Do you not need meetings? Do you want to see each other? You know, and sometimes the answer was yes. And sometimes the answer was no, we need a couple of days. Um, and so, you know, very, you know, very flexible with the group. And we've tried to sort of maintain that flexibility, um, you know, throughout this season, I think that's paid dividends, you know, for our group. And so it's easy to look at all, like there's easy, to pick out, you know, complaints and, and negatives in this whole situation. What positives have you drawn through this process? I mean, I'm sure those practices in the fall that were non-contact definitely focused a little bit more on fundamentals. Um, you know, what other positives can you kind of take from all of this? You know, I think the, uh, you know, certainly we're never going to take anything for granted again. Um, you know, yeah. at least in the short term, um, you know, again, like we, you know, we sort of normally plan backwards and say, okay, we have, you know, X number of practices left in the regular season. And now we're like, Hey, we have one practice. We're guaranteed one practice. Um, you know, cause obviously our season ended last year pretty abruptly mm -hmm. in the middle of our last game. Um, so I think that's, that's a big thing is, you know, just sort of playing every day, like it's your last, you know, to, to quote the old cliche. Um, but it's, you know, these guys have lived that. So I think that's a challenge there. Um, and something that we've, you know, come out of this uh, with more perspective on. And I think just, you know, being able to work with the guys in small groups and having the non-contact stuff, you know, normally we sort of focus on big picture things and we don't really get to work on the, you know, the subtleties of guys' games just because we don't have that time. We normally start practicing two weeks later as our first game. And, you know, this year it was, you know, we started in September and our first game's not till April 10th. So we were really able to work on, you know, the small group skills, um, you know, Beyond that, um, there's nothing that I would say, yeah, I can't wait to do that again yeah, in 2022, yeah. you know, but, but certainly those two things are things that we'll, you know, try and be a little bit better about next year. Yeah, I think you said something, which I was hoping you were going to use the word, but the perspective piece is huge because now for the next, you know, seven years, you've got high schoolers coming on through that all have known what it's like to lose an important season mm -hmm. and how important the game is. And I mean, it, it will be easy to forget that in a few years, but it is something that you can say that you've now lived through this. You've seen what it's like. You, you understand what that feeling is like. So cherish it. And, you know, we've been spoiled for a long time. Like whoever thought that something like this would happen. So let's hope it never happens again, but you know, they do have that perspective of what if it's not just like that your senior year, like, Oh, it's your last game. You're never going to play in uniform again, probably, but it's, it's just more, it's definitely more real. Um, so let's talk, briefly about how the Dartmouth game came to be because you know obviously this used to be very commonplace right like for for D1 and D3s to play each other especially in scrimmages but also you know I would go back to the to the 90s was probably the most recent where it happened commonly um 
and it wasn't that big of a deal. And especially, you know, NESCAC Ivy League, there is a lot of similarities there. Uh, look, geog- yeah. geography is one thing, you know, school, you know, the type of ac- academic institution you are. So again, not really a huge stretch back in the day, but we haven't seen it so often recently. And why don't you just tell us like, kind of like, was it just a phone call? Like, Hey, do you want to play? And you were like, yeah, let's do it. Because I, it sounded like that was kind of how it happened. Basically. Yeah. It, uh, <laughs> I mean, that's kind of how, uh, how all things have happened this year is, uh, is really just kind of with a, you know, I, I just, I'm so grateful for the relationships, uh, that I've been able to build, you know, in this game over the last 20 years. And, uh, you know, it's really just trying to build those relationships where you can, where you can make a phone call, um, and, and, and know that, the person on the other end of the phone is, is really on the same page with you, you know, and thinking about the kids uh, and thinking about the experience of their kids. And so just, you know, hats off to coach Callahan um, for that, you know, just thinking about his guys and, Hey, how can I get these guys a game? Because, you know, that's certainly where I was, um, you know, on, on, on March 10th, when we found out we were going to play and I was like, all right, well, what can we do to get these guys a great experience? Um, and so basically, I can't remember exactly when the date was when he found out that he was going to be able to play games. Um, it was around April 10th. And, you know, he shot us an email um, and said, hey, listen, I know it's a I know it's a long shot, but, you know, we can start playing games the 24th. Um, any chance you've got some flexibility, you know, between the 24th and May 9th, um, you know, and certainly as soon as I got that email, you know, I just jogged down to the athletic director's office and said, Hey, listen, like, this is something we want to do. They're a great team. They've got some really good players. Um, You know, I think from a testing standpoint and a, uh, you know, in a compliance standpoint, they're, they're on the same page as us. So, you know, and, and and they're going to challenge us. And so this is something that we want to do. Can we make this happen? And, you know, our athletic department was great. Our director of sports med, Matt Whalen was just out of this world in terms of his communication with Dartmouth. Um, and, you know, we had a league game the day before with Bates. Um, but, you know, again, the, the D3 tournament this year is going to be back to backs um, every weekend. So we were like, hey, well, that doesn't bother us. You know, we'll, we'll be road warriors. We'll go back to back. That'll be good for us. Um, and, you know, after some back and forth with with Coach Cal, you know, he was uh, we were able to make it work. And, uh, you know, it was great for our guys to go up there and play a really good team. And, you know, again, it was a little eerie being in a being in a stadium with legitimately nobody but Kyle Devitt there. I was gonna say just Devitt standing Uh, there. (laughs) We legitimately played for an audience of one in person. Uh, But yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy. Like, you know, you think about these SEC football games that get planned 10 years in in advance, and we got our game planned, you know, less than 10 days in advance. Um, And I think just everybody from the administrative staffs have just been unbelievable in this time for basically be like, all right, you want to play this date? Like, great. We'll get the buses. We'll do this with the testing. We'll do this with the facilities. And, you know, we were just able to make it happen. And so, I mean, I don't know if you'll give me, or if you're able to give me hundred percent the truth here, but was there any part of you for even a second that was like, well, maybe we don't want to do this. Like we, ha- like you're the number one team in D3, y- you know, that is a little bit of a trap game there is a back-to-back aspect of it. Was there any part of you that was worried about that? Or you're like the benefits far outweigh any possible negatives to, to test our guys. And honestly, to also do a friend a favor um, because that, you know, both teams are in need of more games. So was there any part of you that for any second was like, maybe not, or were you like, this is a great idea. Let's do it if we can do it. 
Well, I think, you know, again, I, I think any coach who is going into a game with a big going, going into a game against a big physical team, obviously the first thing that comes into your mind is injuries. Mm -hmm. Um, so you're like, man, like these guys, you look up and down Dartmouth's roster, it's like six, five, six, They've gotten six, so six big. seven, yeah. they're, they're <laughs> enormous. Right. So, you know, and we're, we're pretty big, um, for a division three team, but you know, you always worry about that. So we sort of talk through that and we're like, all right, you know, like if we have any sort of like minor injuries, if it's a concussion, if it's a rolled ankle, if it's, you know, something small like that, right. Or, you know, hyper, anything, um, you know, we're two weeks out from the NESCAC championship. Um, you know, we could probably overcome one of those minor injuries before the NESCAC championship. And, you know, realistically a catastrophic injury could happen against Dartmouth against Bates right. or practice. So, that was sort of silly to say that our guys were more likely to suffer a catastrophic injury in that game versus any other time where they're playing lacrosse. Um, so once we sort of talked through that, um, you know, that was, we sort of checked that box on the injury front. Um, you know, and again, my mentality, since I started coaching, I became a head coach at 23 is, you know, we'll play anybody, anytime, anywhere. Um, and so, you know, for us, it was like, Hey, listen, like these guys are a great team. They're going to be a great test for us. Like, why wouldn't we take, this opportunity to play these guys, uh, you know, in a normal year, we try and schedule the best teams possible out of conference. And, you know, we didn't think we were going to get to play anybody out of conference and like, man, this one fell into our lap and like, we got to take advantage of this. Um, and so, you know, once we ran through sort of those minor things with, with me and the coaching staff, you know, it really was a no brainer for us, but, you know, and, and we talked to our guys like, Hey, you want to do this? And they were like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like we absolutely want right. to do it. So, um, so that was, that kind of became a no brainer for us. Yeah, and I don't think you'll see a defense as physical as that one for a while, at least. Uh, that was it was a good thing for you guys to only win by six in any game, no matter who you're playing with, because that will kind of let the guys know, like, hey, somebody can stop us. Like, somebody is out there and they're capable of doing it. And you know, you put up a lot of goals right before that, so they were probably maybe humbled just a tad when they only, you know, were able to score 15, no matter who the defense is, but all right, well, th that's great. And do you think you, if, if possible, that's a, maybe not Dartmouth, but that's the type of game you'd love to get in the future now that you've had a taste of it or your players have had a, that taste. Well, I think it's, you know, for us, it's just, Hey, how, who can we play? That's going to give us, that's going to test us, mm -hmm. you know? And so whether that's a division one school or a division three school, you know, for us, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, I think playing a game where there's a little bit more buzz surrounding it um, is going to prepare us for bigger games, you know, whether that's a conference championship or, you know, the national tournament, um, we want to play in those types of games, you know, so I mean, I think I think it's great, right? I mean, you want to I think any coach is trying to prepare their team to accomplish their goals. And our goal every year is to win the national championship. And so, we want to prepare against teams that are going to help us reach that goal. And so if that's a goal for a Dartmouth or another Ivy league school or another division one school where they like, Hey, we want to, you know, play the fastest possible team. Like, why don't we schedule toughs? Then, you know, we're going to be, we're going to be game for that. We don't care, you know, who it is or when it is, you know, we're always up for challenges. I think it was really cool too, because I, I don't remember the lacrosse community as excited to watch Dartmouth in the last couple of years as they were on a random Sunday in April. So I think that was an incredible aspect to it. Like the whole lacrosse community was a fan of this game, regardless of the outcome. They just, they loved to see it happen again. And then on Friday night you had Penn Gabrini. So it was kind of like this weird crossover weekend. 
And I wish, I mean, maybe it's an early season thing, but I, I would love to get just a, a, basically an ACC Big Ten type thing going between <laughs> Neskek and Ivy. But, you know, in a given year, throwing a couple of other schools, that'd be kind of tough. So um, let's talk briefly. You know, interesting thing I read up on you is that you were, what, a 12-time letter winner at Tufts? I was a eight-time letter winner, eight-time letter uh, winner. but uh, I played uh, three sports there. So I played football and lacrosse for four years, mm-hmm. and uh, and then I played basketball for one year while I was there. Okay, okay, that that was the part I wasn't clear on. It was how many years you played basketball, but it is so it's already a difficult school. Uh, I spent one year at Oberlin. I understand like this this high-level liberal arts ed- education. Tufts is the same way. I understand playing sports. I played two sports my freshman year. It was too much. You played three sports. Was it your senior year or your freshman year that you played basketball? I actually played my junior year. Okay. Uh, so I, 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 I kind of got my academics in order, which, you know, I couldn't say my freshman year. Um, mm-hmm. And then once I kind of did that and got the lay of the land, it, it was, uh, it was worth giving it a shot. Okay. So how do you, you kind of answered it, but how do you balance that rig like that rigorous academic schedule of of a tufts of a nescac school playing one or two or sometimes three sports i mean that i understand what that takes but like how how were you able to you know what what made that happen for you were you an exceptional student or did you just work really hard or was it just kind of a maturing thing over time that you realize like if you really prioritize your time you can make this happen yeah, I, I certainly don't want to be confused for uh, or or mistaken for an exceptional student. Um, okay. No question about that. You know, <laughs> I would say that um, I was a I was a capable and competent student. Um, I, that was definitely an area where, you know, in hindsight, and certainly my parents wish I would have been a little bit better. Um, you know, I, I played three sports all through high school. I did a I did a PG year before I went to Tufts. I played three sports there. Um, I really didn't know how to do it any other way. And, uh, you know, I probably had like a five week gap between the end of football and the beginning of lacrosse, my freshman and sophomore year. And I I wasn't finding myself to be spending any more time on my academics, even though I probably should have been. Um, And so I think for me, it was, you know, from an academic standpoint, I wasn't any worse off having played that additional year or playing the additional sport. Um, you know, and for me, like I'm, I'm most comfortable in a locker room. Like I just, I love being a part of a team. Um, I love the chatter before and after practice. I love the competitiveness, um, you know, and, 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 and when I played, when I played football, you know, I was the starting quarterback and, you know, you're like, you're the guy and, you know, you're the leader on the team and in the locker room, you know, and, and, and in, and in basketball, I was, uh, I was, I was supposed to be the agitator. You know, we had a guy on our team, Reggie Stovall, who um, was NESCAC player of the year, his senior year, my junior year, when we played and my assignment every day in practice was just to be a pain in his ass. So I'd throw elbows, I'd talk trash, I'd, you know, shove him off the ball. Um, and legitimately for the first month of practice, he hated me. And that's how I knew I was doing a good job with him. Um, and so you know, I really got to be sort of the rah-rah guy and the juice guy at practice every day. Uh, And I loved it. I relished it. I loved being, you know, I loved being that guy challenging guys in sprints and things like that. Um, And just having a different role and and, and meeting a different group of guys and spending time with those guys. I mean, that was, that was one of my favorite 
you know, periods of time at Tufts uh, just with that group. Cause you know, you go from a team of 75 in football to, you know, 50 in lacrosse to 12 in basketball. And it's just a totally different ecosystem in that locker room. So um, I think for me, it was just like, Hey, this is a cool opportunity. I want to take advantage of it. I want to see if I can do it. I want to challenge myself in that way. Um, and I don't regret it at all. The only, the only regret I had and the reason I didn't play my senior year was I started playing midfield and lacrosse my junior year. And because of my role in basketball, which like, I wasn't a starter. It was basically like, I was like the 10th guy out of 12. And then on some days I was the 12th guy. Most days I was the 12th guy. And uh, it was basically like the starters got a rest during practice, but I would just go from one team to the other. It's like, all right, you know, like Jesse's going out case you're on white now. And Oh, you know, Jesse's going back in. So case go back to Brown. You know, and, and I would legitimately ran for two hours straight every day, you know, and by the time I got to April of that season, because I didn't take a single day off between basketball and lacrosse, um, we, our season ended on Saturday in the NESCAC semis against Amherst, and then the next day we were scrimmaging Lemoyne in lacrosse, and I played in that scrimmage um, on that Sunday, so legitimately zero days off, and uh, by the time we hit April, like, I just... I, there weren't enough ice baths in the world to get my legs back under me. Um, and that was really sort of the reason why I didn't play my senior year is like my body just couldn't physically right, handle right. that much wear and tear. Um, so that's why I went back to two my senior year. It's interesting. I, I was the only, those were my three sports as well. And I was the only basketball guy on the lacrosse team. Like I, mm -hmm. I think it's rare to get that combination of three, but I, I can tell you, I was never in better shape for a lacrosse season than right after basketball. Cause I was kind of that same role, that seventh, eighth guy, like the six foot two center, like all you're doing is out there messing with the two seven footers and giving them a hard time. So, you know, undercutting them doing, doing what you got to do. So I, yeah. I completely understand and relate to that. So yeah. you, you graduate from Tufts, you get a job at the Taft school and you do that for, or, 10 years, 10 years. Okay, mm -hmm. good. Thank you. Yep, no worries. Uh, what was the major difference when you, well, let's, let's rephrase that. So when coach Daly gets the job at Brown or lets people know that he's leaving and that that position's opening, how eager were you to kind of put your name in the hat? Were you contacted by Tufts kind of, how did that whole process play out? Because you didn't have college coaching experience leading into one of the premier jobs in all of college. So how, how did that whole thing play out? Yeah, that was, uh, that was an interesting um, six weeks to say the least. Um, you know, so basically I called when I heard that, that coach Dales was leaving um, you know, I called one alum who was in the coaching ranks and I was like, Hey, like you're going to put your name in the hat. Right. And he was like, no, I'm not but like you should. I was like, Oh yeah. Like whatever, you know, there's no chance. Like they'd take a, take a shot on me. And then I called another guy and I was like, well, you're going to put your name in. Right. And he was like, no, I'm not. I'm like taking this other job. Like, but you should. And then, so I called coach Dales and I was like, I was like, should I, like, is this something like, there's, there's no way. Right. He goes, Hey, listen, like this is, you should, you should put your name in the hat, like see what happens. It'll be great experience. And like, I honestly wasn't that serious about it because I didn't really think that one, I didn't know if I wanted to do it because I had such a good gig at Taft, you know, like, my, you know, my wife and I had a house rent free, you know, we right. had a, we had a, a, a two-year-old and a newborn, like I loved my job. I loved that place. It's such a special place. Um, 
And then I got in touch with, with the AD, John Morris. I mean, he seemed like a fantastic person. He is a fantastic person. And, um, you know, the more I sort of looked into it and the opportunities and talking to the guys on the team and talking to the alums and, you know, obviously I am an alum from there. And those guys were like, Hey, you know, we think you do a good job. Like we trust you. Like we have faith in you. Um, it just became more and more intriguing. Um, and, you know, my wife was totally on board, which is obviously the biggest thing. And, uh, and you know, when it came down to it, I was like, you know, this is the only time in my life I'm going to have this opportunity. This will be such a cool challenge. Um, it'll be a big challenge uh, for sure, um, but I'm going to give it a try. And I think that I think that we can make this work and I think that we can be great. Um, you know, and I think that the culture was there already. Um, and so, you know, sort of went at it and was like, hey, here's what I'm thinking. Here's my vision. And uh, ultimately it it worked out. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly when we got there, we had some work to do, uh, for a number of different reasons, but, um, you know, I think ultimately we've been on a, we've been on a good trajectory, uh, since we've, since we, uh, since we got there, you know, whatever, almost five years ago now. Yeah. And, and so when you, if you're anything like me, and it sounds like you kind of are, when you applied for the job, you were applying because maybe, right. It's interesting, maybe. And then the more you thought about it and the more you talk to people, did you get more and more excited to the point where it's like, man, I really, now I really want this thing. Like this is, I'm getting really invested into this. I'm already have plans out and, and stuff like that. So it sounds like from your expression, that's exactly how it was. And, and it's hard not to once, you know, you, you might apply to a place cause uh, well, let's just see what happens. But once you start thinking about yourself in that position and you, you see what it could be, it's hard to, it's hard not to get really excited about that. Um, so you, you get the job, you take over for coach daily and obviously, you know, there's, there's this established culture. What did you do to kind of establish your own culture without completely taking away anything coach daily did? And I mean, you just, you know how it is, you've taken over for a coach. So, you know, it, there's a fine line there between bringing your new kind of shtick and who you are and what you want the program to be without disrespecting what it has been. So what kind of things did you do to change it? And what kind of things did you do to keep building on what was already there? Yeah, I think that's, uh, that, that was the most difficult part um, was, you know, how do you take a program that's been in the last three national championship games, one, two of them, um, and say, hey, we're going to do all these new things. You know, they're going to look at you and be like, who, who's this high school guy? <laughs> they're trying to come in and tell us what to do. You know, we, you know, mm -hmm. we're, we, we're, you know, 78 and 12, the last four We've years. done all right, coach. So like, four, yeah, exactly. We know what we're doing here. Um, you know, so when I took over at Taft, I was 23 and it was an absolute dumpster fire. I mean, we were three and 10. My, I was the assistant coach my first year. We were three and 10. We won all three of those games against the three worst teams in the league by I think a total of four goals. Um, and so when I took over, you know, it was like, Hey, we're going to try this. And guys were like, great. <laughs> like, you know, it was like, we don't care. We just want to win, you know, mm -hmm. we, you know, and that was a process certainly, you know, we had to figure that out. And, you know, I think the, the most important thing that I learned over my 10 years at Taft is like, you got to just be you, right. If you try and be somebody else, like the guys are going to see right through that. Um, and so, you know, I, you know, coach Daly is one of my mentors. I think he's a phenomenal leader and a phenomenal coach. He and I are different, you know, we're different in our leadership styles, we're different in our communication styles, we're different in our, you know, demeanor in the office and demeanor on the field. 
Um, and I think that took the guys a little bit of getting used to. Um, either they thought I wasn't serious enough or they thought I wasn't intense enough. Um, and so there was definitely that first year we had to build some trust um, and it took a while. And, uh, you know, we, I didn't, I intentionally didn't change too much because I met with the guys and I was like, all right, what do you want to keep? What do you want to ditch? You know, and there wasn't much that they wanted to ditch and they wanted to keep a lot of it. And it was like, all right, well, we've had some success doing this. And, you know, we, we sort of get to the preseason and, you know, it, things are okay. You know, um, you know, we don't do particularly well on the run test. And I was like, well, you know, I look back, we had, you know, 15 years worth of scores. And I'm like, well, you know, there's not really a correlation between winning a lot of games in the run test. Um, you know, and we start off 11 and 0 that year. Um, and, you know, I implemented a 10 man ride and, you know, that I'd used at Taft and, you know, we had, we pretty much did a number on teams, those first 11 games, then people started to figure it out a little bit. Um, but the biggest thing that first year was we had 13 season ending injuries. We had like eight ACLs. We had like broken ankles. We had crazy torn rotate. Like it was just like, it was just an absolute meat wagon at the end of the bench. You know what I mean? It was just like, you couldn't believe how many crutches there were at the end of the bench. Um, and then ultimately, you know, I, I think that combined with our, you know, with our lack of conditioning that we're where we needed to be um, at the end of the season, you know, hurt us. You know, we we lost in the NESCAC semis for the first time in eight years. We, you know, we, um, you know, we got crushed in the NCAAs. Um, you know, obviously we have all these injuries. And so it was like, okay, like now we've kind of got a template. Now the guys know me a little bit, like, here's how we're going to, we're not going to wholesale change, but like, here are the changes that need to need to happen. You know, we did a couple things and, you know, I think from that, we sort of started on a little bit of a slightly different trajectory, um, while still keeping the base of the culture that was there. And I think that that's been a recipe for, you know, added success these last couple of years. Yeah. I mean, you, you said it really, really well. Like you have to be, there's a fine line there and you have to be able to, like you said, build trust first. And if that meant the first season's kind of like a dry run of, of this whole thing, and, and we're going to figure it out from there, but you can't just come in and wholesale change things. Cause a lot of coaches have tried to do that overnight. And a lot of coaches meet a lot of friction and it's, it's been proven time and time again that unless it's a, like you said, a dumpster fire to begin with wholesale changes, maybe not, may not be necessary. I would say three straight national appearances <laughs> is not a dumpster fire. So like, it's very unique to take it from your role. Like very few people walk into a job like that. So, and I think very few people ever will. So it, it's hard. A lot of guys don't leave those jobs at those times. They probably stay too long and then the program declines and then they get out. So I wanted to leave you with one last question um, recruiting. So, you know, we've had Jerry Byrne on here talking about recruiting to Harvard. We've had guys from all over D2 and D3 talk about recruiting, but you know, the NESCAC, the Ivy league, they're very different in, in the recruiting. I see on your roster, you're from all over the country. So what is kind of, you know, what's, what's the best piece of advice you would give a recruit that's looking at the NESCAC that might be different from like their standard, more traditional, maybe going for your public type recruitment. And what is kind of your recruiting philosophy at Tufts? If you can kind of summarize it. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, I think my experience coaching high school ball um, and coaching at a high level at that level, you know, we had, 
three Under Armour All-Americans in the last couple of years there up from, you know, again, very few college guys when I first started. So you sort of learn, you know, how to recruit um, on your own. And then you also learn what a D1 lacrosse player looks like and what a D1 lacrosse player doesn't look like. And one of the things that you learn about that is that it's not just the skill level. Like I, I coached a number of guys who were more than talented enough to excel at the division one level at the high division one level. Um, but for whatever reason, whether it was the motivation, whether it was the, the inability or unwillingness to, to, you know, accept roles at a place, if it was, you know, they couldn't balance the work life social scene, um, you know, at really fun schools, um, that were also very good at lacrosse. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of things that, you know, make a great division one lacrosse player. And only a few of those things are on field stuff, mm -hmm. you know, the, 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 the stick skills, the footwork, the physicality, things like that. Um, so much more being a successful division one lacrosse player is, you know, the social piece, the academic piece, the motivation, um, you know, how, how that fits in with, you know, the, the NESCAC piece is, or the division three piece is, you know, we play a really, really high level of lacrosse, really high level, you know? Um, and the nice thing about our level of lacrosse is, you know, lacrosse at Tufts is not a job. You know, you go to some of these places and it's in the off season, you're up at 6 a.m. for Indies, you know, and then you're going to class um, and then you've got meetings um, and then you've got film and then you've got study hall and then you've got lifting, you know, and that's Monday, you know, and and that can burn guys out. Like even guys that are really good lacrosse players love lacrosse like that can burn guys out. You know, and I think that what the NESCAC does is it gives guys a little bit of, um, you know, work life balance so, you know, they can come here and play a really high level of lacrosse and, you know, work on their craft on their own um, when they have free time and not build their entire life around lacrosse. So I think that that's that's a big advantage for our league is I think there's a lot of guys out there that love playing the sport um, and want to do it and want to and want to compete but they, they actually can't do it, um, at the, at the speed, um, maybe not the speed, but at the commitment level that's required at a lot of these places. Um, and so I think that that's where the NESCAC gives you balance is, is, Hey, listen, you can come here, you can be a pre-med kid and you can compete for a national championship and kids can do that. You know, like one of our best guys this year, Mac Bradle is, you know, he, he was a division one committed guy and, you know, now he's come, now he's at Tufts. He plays on the golf team. You know, he's a quantitative economics major and he's also the preseason player of the year. And it's not that he couldn't do that at the division one school that he was committed at, but he wanted more of that balance of life um, that maybe the, maybe some of these D ones couldn't provide for him. And he's a pretty damn good golfer too. So that, that's pretty cool for him. Um, you know, and then, and then the toughs pitch, I suppose is, you know, you know, you're going to have that work-life balance. You can major in whatever you want. I'll never tell you, you can't major in something. Um, you're going to be near a city. You know, I think that's why we're so national is it's easy to get to Tufts. You know, I tell people all the time, like you can, it's easier for you and faster for you to fly from San Diego and get to, and get to Tufts than it is from Western New York. 
Like if you're going to drive from Rochester, if you're going to drive from Buffalo, if you're going to drive from central PA, you can get here faster flying from San Diego or from Seattle or from San Francisco or from Denver. And so, you know, you hit the airport and you're at campus in 15 minutes. Um, and so that's where I think we're able to attract a pretty national roster. Um, and, you know, one of the lines that we use a lot with recruits is like, hey, if you need to come here and somebody's going to hold your hand and bring you to lift and bring you down to the cage and bring you to shooting in the off season and bring you to this and bring you to that, then like you're not going to have success here because like that infrastructure is not available to you. But if you come here and you want to compete and you want to bring guys along with you and you want to, you know, text your buddies and be like, hey, I'm going to shoot at the turf at three o'clock, like who's coming with me? Um, or if you want to, on a Sunday, you know, go get an extra lift in and do some footwork or come up to the coach's office and, you know, you know, shoot the breeze and, you know, ask questions or do some whiteboard work in the off season. And you're intellectually curious like that. Um, then this is a place where you're going to ha have a lot of success. And so I think it's really for those guys that are self-starters that do really well and want to have that work-life balance, but also want to compete for a national championship. You know, again, like if, you know, if you go to Duke, you know, there's a lot of good players there for, you know, for sure. You can go play for a national championship and play in front of 35,000 people. Like, that's pretty cool. You know, if you go to Tufts, you know, you get to go to a pretty good school. You can go see some Celtics games about 15 minutes away and you can go play for a national championship in front of 25,000 people, you know, in an NFL stadium. So, you know, the differences aren't that great. Um, you know, when it comes to, you know, the end game at a lot of these places, you have a great professional network, you have a great academic experience, you're close to really big time sports. Um, and, you know, again, like you can, you can make the experience your own. So I think that's sort of like the biggest difference and, you know, where I think we can attract those really high level lacrosse players without, you know, um, you know, where, where we're able to beat some schools at higher, you know, division levels than, you know, than maybe some, some of the other NESCACs or some of the other division threes are. Yeah. And it's funny to me listening to you talk about it and listening to Jerry talk about the same question and how similar they are. It's like, we're never going to tell you not to take a class because you're here for, you know, you're here for your major and you're here for your career and your life. And lacrosse happens to be like the number two thing that you do when you're here. Like it's, it's definitely academics first. Like, why wouldn't, why would you come all the way here not to take the class that you were supposed to take? Yep. And, and at certain schools that priority is not made. It's like, Hey, can you move this class just so you can make this practice at this time or not be 15 minutes late here? And the priority is just different. And, and that's, that's how they do things. And that's not how you do things. So, um, yeah, I think you, you explained it perfectly. It's not the right fit for somebody that doesn't have that kind of that self-start mentality because it is a little bit more unstructured than at the D one level and the D one level does burn people out. And that's why we've been preaching on this show for a long time that recruiting is all about fit and what fit means is different for everybody. But I've seen a lot of guys burn out of D1 that were multi-time All-Americans because they weren't ready for it to be a job. And it's a job at the Division One level, 100%. It can be a fun job, but it's a job. So, Coach, I thank you so much for your time. I wish you the best of luck the rest of the way. And I can't wait to, uh, to watch the Jumbos keep going.
Thanks, Nick. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe, give us a review, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Going Offsides. Sides.